0: for the persecutor.
1: Welcome again. My name is Todd Nettleton. We're in the studio today with Jeremy Malkin. He is the regional leader for Voice of the Martyrs' work in West and Central Africa, and we will talk a little bit about some of the countries that he is working in and overseeing our work in. Jeremy has been our guest previously, so Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you
2: so much, Todd.
1: You know, it's interesting to me, we started out this year talking about some places in Africa. You and Sean were here together. Uh, One of the countries we talked about is Benin. We're going to talk about that again today. But uh, as we think about a new prayer map and new countries, what goes into that on, on your side, on the international ministry side, to say, hey, this is a country that hasn't been on our prayer map, but we need to put it on there. The Christians are being persecuted there. We need it on our prayer map how how does that conversation go
2: yeah i think there's two um things that really go into that one is just the the amount of persecution in a particular country one of the countries we added to the prayer map which we'll talk a little bit more about later is is the country of niger and because we VOM is responding to so many cases of persecution throughout the country a lot of them somewhat isolated cases of you know those who come to faith but but are ostracized by their families, um, just you know, face that communal pressure, as well as you have some jihadist activity coming into the western part of the country, which we'll talk about. The other aspect is just there there are some countries where the the persecution is very violent and very immense. and and it's either started really within the last year or two or VLM has really just uh, had the capacity to really start digging in and, and seeing what's actually happening in those areas.
1: And I think one of the things for our listeners to understand is, uh, like we say, Niger is now added to the prayer map. It's not the first time we've ever been to Niger. It's not the first time we've ever uh, assisted persecuted mm-hmm. Christians there. It's just gotten to the point where we're like, hey— this is not a one-off. This is not sort of out of the ordinary. This is now the ordinary. This is what it means to be a Christian in that country. So I think it's important for yeah. our, our listeners to know, yes, we've had people on the ground there. We have talked to Christians there. We have had an eye on it for several years by the time it gets to the point where we say, we need this on our prayer map,
2: Yes, definitely. I mean, Niger is a great um, example of that because back in early 2015, there were over 80 churches that were attacked and by just Muslim mob violence. But even at that time, we thought, well, this, this seems somewhat isolated. This isn't the norm in Niger. Whereas today, because of the amount of cases we're responding to and because of the jihadist activity near the Burkina and Mali borders, um, it is significant enough where we feel that we're, we're there all the time. We're responding all the time. How could we not include it on the map?
1: and one of the countries that's not on the map but is kind of in that state where hey we're we're starting to see some things that's concerning to us we're starting to have contact there is ivory coast or cote d'ivoire as they say talk to me about ivory coast talk to me about what is happening there with christians
2: yeah no that's a that's a great example of one that was typically not on our radar in the past but um, our our field leader uh, for the Ivory Coast back in July heard of an event more in the north-central part of the country. And this, this actually wasn't uh, Muslims who were persecuting Christians. It was animus. Now, I mean, they, they may call themselves Muslim, but it's more folk Islam. But they, they believe in ancestral worship, witchcraft. The community in this area were planning to have an initiation of some sort – where they're honoring their ancestors and and they told the Christians on a Sunday morning, "Hey, we we don't want you to hold services." Now, understanding the context of you you have demonic worship and then you have Christian worship of the true God, right? And they know when Christians are worshiping God and that there that there is power in that. So they they told the Christians, "Stay home." This go is to, our day. Don't go to church. This is need our to day. Stay away. Well, and and the Christians. I mean, <laughs> what would you do? They said, "No, right. this is this is our day. This is our right. day to worship, to gather." And this is multiple churches from th- around the community, and so so they go. They hold services, prayer time, worship, and um, go back in the evening. And then that evening, the animistic community started raiding these churches, and particularly focusing on the church leaders. Where the leaders were beaten, stripped naked, dragged dragged into the street as a way to shame them and expose them, and um, and then other members of the congregation were uh, severely beaten as well. Were I mean, we photos of you know legs and arms broken and wow. and many many people hospitalized. Out of the five churches that were attacked, three of them were completely destroyed to the ground. And VOM is is working on helping with that in 2023. But uh, today, asking our field leader just for an update of the of what, how is the church doing now? Nobody was killed in these attacks, and um, the they con- they continue to worship. They can't they can't go to their church, but they're worshiping in their homes and continuing to have a bold witness in the community. So, as you said, the Ivory Coast is not on the prayer map. There's many countries like the Ivory Coast where there is persecution occurring. You could, Sierra Leone, Togo is another one where we're we're seeing more and more happening up in the north.
1: And, and I think it's interesting that you point out with regards to Ivory Coast, this is not radical Islam. Uh, this is not an ISIS-affiliated mm-hmm. group. It is, it's the community, and it's really the the witch doctor, the spirit worship, the sort of animistic thing in the community. That's also the case in Benin, as I understand it, which is now on our prayer map. So it's it's gone from this happens occasionally to now this, this is a pretty regular thing for Christians there. Talk a little bit about that. And like I said, I think it's interesting because we have talked about the rise of radical Islam in Africa. We have talked about, you know, places like Nigeria and Boko Haram. This is not that. This is a different thing. But, you know, when your church gets destroyed, when your pastor gets beaten in the streets— it's not so important to you, you know, why are the, who, what motivates these persecutors? It's, hey, my pastor's been beaten in the streets, my church has been torn down. Talk a little bit about Benin and, and what it looks like to be a Christian there.
2: Yeah, so that example in the Ivory Coast is is very common in northern Benin, but the the activity there is much more hostile towards Christians. I mean, very violent, where it's, almost on a, at least on a monthly basis, every few weeks, we're hearing a pretty severe attacks, both against churches being destroyed, that type of mob violence initiated by the animistic community, or uh, church leaders being killed. I mean, one person you can pray for in particular is is a pastor named Timothy, um, who was in a service preaching when animus came in and severely beat him and his wife they were both taken to the hospital his wife died from the beating and about a week later and he he's no back at, back at home recovering but they have four children and wow. and that was one of the prayer requests from from our partners inside the country those types of attacks against individuals and against congregations are happening very very often in the north where these animistic communities have become just very violent. I mean, they view Christianity as a foreign religion that's not native to their part of of Benin, and their tribal practices go back generations and generations. So, of course, there's this fear of offending the ancestors of, of all these things, and the church has just taken a, a beating for it.
1: It's interesting to me how they recognize the spiritual power of the church, the spiritual power of God's people worshiping, God's people gathering together, God's people praying. It seems like there's a lesson there almost for us. Like when we gather for church, we need to understand that's a that's a powerful thing in the spiritual realm. It seems like maybe our brothers and sisters in Benin have a little better understanding. And unfortunately, it's because they're suffering, but it seems like they have a something to teach us about that.
2: If there was no spiritual power in Christian worship in northern Benin, they wouldn't be attacked, you know. So they, they come from a culture, the animistic culture even, believes in this spiritual essence in everything that exists, whether it's an object or a creature or a place. And the church understands that because they're from that culture. Many of the, these are first-generation Christians. So, and and when you hear the testimonies of many people that have come to faith in that area, it's because they saw that God is more powerful through Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes it's, I was sick. I went to the witch doctor. He couldn't heal me. And then I went to the church and I was prayed for and I was and I healed well. and it was mirac- miraculous. And I can't explain it except that Jesus is God and is that is that powerful so so that that sense of power is of course very fearful to the animus it, we need to learn from that I think as a Western church that uh, when we go to service when we worship the Lord and when we pray there is significant power in in that you you can go to places like northern Benin and they're asking for our prayers and they say we we feel your prayers, we, we know you are praying for us, and that means more to us than anything else because they know that that power is there. And, and, um, and I think we can be encouraged by that to, to not only pray for them but to live our lives in such a way with such boldness that we know the gospel is going to transform lives.
1: So would they—part of their fear of the growth of the church would be that the, the spirits are going to get angry? like the, the village spirits or the whatever is going to get angry? If, if we allow these people to be Christians, that's going to make trouble for us? Is, is that part of their thought process, or is it simply they're outsiders? They don't belong here?
2: No, that it, that's definitely part of their okay. thought process, that the ancestors would be angry with them. But when you think at the root of animism, again, is demonic worship. Animism in northern Benin is where what we— referred to voodoo originally came from. And we know kind of what that implies and, and just the evil behind it, but it's it's satanic, it's opposition towards towards Christ, mm-hmm. towards towards scripture, towards the church. So when when light comes into a dark place, when Christians, when the church uh, stays put and continues to worship that that light is noticed, and we know that light overcomes darkness. But darkness is gonna gonna push back, like it does everywhere else. Why there is persecution in general, whether by Muslims, animists, or radical Hindus, you know, it's um, so. It's the light of the church in that community that is so fearful to to the animists.
1: And I want to encourage you, we're going to talk in just a few minutes here with Jeremy Malkin. He is the regional leader for West and Central Africa. We will talk about specific ways we can pray for the countries in his region, but I especially want to highlight Pastor Timothy, uh, who he talked about, has lost his wife. He is raising their four children now without their mom. I would encourage you to pray for Pastor Timothy. Jeremy, let's kind of switch gears and look at DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, um, I know there's a story coming up in our January magazine specifically about a trip that you were on to go to DRC to meet the Christians there, to hear what's happening with them. This was eye-opening to me, okay? And, I, and I've been working here now almost 25 years. I've read a lot of persecution stories, but some of the stories that you shared from that trip to DRC were shocking to me, just the the level of violence and the mm-hmm. level of persecution that's happening Talk a little bit about what our brothers and sisters there are facing.
2: The eastern part of the DRC has been really uh, in a war since '96. What is often referred to a, a, as the Great War of Africa or the Second Congo War, but a significant war where more than five million people have died. Just in that region alone, there's you know over a hundred rebel groups that are that are registered that the UN is aware of, or militia groups. And most of that has nothing to do with, with religion. It's, there's, there's all kinds of things at play here. Geography, uh, just natural resources, ethnic divisions, political differences, and a number of different things. So to get to the eastern part of the, the DRC, we're flying into Uganda. And then from there, we hop over – but usually that requires chartered aircraft, mission aviation groups that are that are able to get to these areas. And oftentimes when we're flying into these very remote areas, because you can't travel by by land, mainly because of the conflict going on. It's too dangerous. Sometimes in some areas that we go to it's just not developed enough to to really go by to have road. Roads. <laughs> unless you may take, you know, a week driving through the bush. Even going by plane to these dirt airstrips out at, in very remote areas, it's, it's usually finding out a day before if we even have permission to land because of the security situation. I mean, one of the, the villages that we went to, through connections that we have through some of our team, there's a Ugandan military presence on the ground trying to uh, secure the region from a rebel group called the ADF the uh, Allied Democratic Forces, which is the main persecutor of Christians in this region. It's an Islamist group, has an Islamist agenda to have a really a Muslim enclave in in that region, complete Islamic control, and has carried out brutal attacks. The the Ugandan military came in a couple months before we arrived. The Mission Aviation uh, Ministry uh, who brought us there hadn't landed there in over a year and wasn't sure that it would be possible— but we got in contact with the the commander of the Ugandan military, who cleared the air, you know, made sure it was clear through relationships, and and kind of said, "Okay, you guys are good. There's security on the ground. Don't stay more than you know two hours." And we did. I, I mean, even flying into this area, we did two flyovers just to make sure just that it was in fact strip. clear. Yeah. And we there were about a hundred Ugandan troops in formation along the airstrip with a number of armored vehicles and tanks and finally landed were we put into an armored vehicle taken to town where that's really the only place we could stay in this, in this area uh, because the outskirts were still unsecure. The ADF was still very active. So taken to the town met at a church in the center of town where believers started coming to us first 30 minutes um, about 300 people trickled into the, to the church and every one of them wanted to share their testimonies. These people had just returned to this town within the last two months when the military came in to protect them. They had previously just been living out in the in the bush or in internally displaced people camps because it was too insecure. So they were just returning home and telling a story after story of what had happened to them. All the churches that they had used to attend in nearby villages had completely been destroyed. In fact, the church where we were meeting them in uh, was the only church that, that was remaining. Uh, an example of one of the stories, which this this brother is on the cover of next month's magazine, January magazine, but Mutembo, he shared of being abducted by the ADF. And, and we probably met over 20 people, similar to Mutembo, mainly, primarily women. He was one of the few men that we met who had been ab- abducted by the ADF and somehow escaped or were released over some time. So Mutembo had been ab- abducted and with about 20 others. And this, these are typically raids on a village, and people were gathered up and taken to one of the, the camps of the, the, the rebel group. They were asked each, you know, what, what is your, what is your role? What, what do you do? And Mutembo is like, well, I'm an elder at my church and that's who I am, you know? So, uh, thinking that he could be killed because of that. And he was actually told, well, because of your position in the, in the church, if you don't deny Christ, we're going to kill you. Um, so think long and hard about this. One younger man, um, that Mutembo started breaking down in tears as he told about this young man's story, this, this um, and Saeed in his 20s. So Christian named Saeed, Islamic name, uh, the ADF soldiers um, took Saeed and said, how can you disgrace Islam by, by being a Christian with a Muslim name and killed him on the spot? And so the other Mutembo and a few others uh, were taken they were beaten over the head, and they were eventually put into basically a well and left there for days. Now, again, there's there's a lot more to the story, which you can read about in the magazine, but Mutembo was beaten so hard, he doesn't think clearly. I mean, there, there's some mental issues now that he has, and and some of the other elders at the church were telling us about that just just heartbroken for Mutembo and what he went through and he can't actually remember how how he got out how wow. if how they if they they rescued you know pulled him out of the well or whatever but he knew that somehow he was was, he was rescued spared. spared and he praised god for that but but his mind was so far gone he couldn't remember everything that had happened so so that that's an example of one story we out of those, and he
1: knew. I mean, you had to know. If I say I'm an elder in my church, this is not going to go well for me. Like he knew that when they asked the question. Oh, he and, knew, and yet he was willing to say, "This is what I am. I'm, I stand for Jesus."
2: He was. In fact, they they kind of asked him a follow up question: "Are you sure you're?
1: Are you sure you're an elder <laughs> yeah, in the church? I I, do you really <laughs> you serve you the you're church, a church Because or?
2: you realize what will happen to you." And and he was very adamant about it. He's like, "I'm I'm here to serve the Lord." you know, no matter what the cost. So very uh, many stories. So when we there were about 300 people in the in the church that and everybody wanted to share. And but when we asked them, how many of you have had loved ones, you know, close family killed in these attacks by the ADF, 90 percent of them raised their hands and you just see a whole room. Of hands going up, and and these aren't just distant relatives; these are these are children, these are spouses, these are parents uh, that have been killed um, in this violence.
1: So, how do you how do you process? You're there. You've you've gone a long way. You only have two hours because they've said, "Listen, it's not safe for you to be here longer than two hours. You need to get on the plane and get back out of here." You have three hundred people who want to share their stories with you. How do you even? Decide who to talk to, and and how do you like? It's almost heartbreaking to leave without hearing all three hundred yeah. of those stories. Yeah. How do you process that as you as you leave?
2: You know, it's it's difficult. Um, we rely on our on our hosts, you know, in the on the ground. So in this case, it was pastors from a local church there uh, who kind of vetted these are the stories that you should hear from. Knew the people well enough to. To choose who would share, and so leaving it in their hands and letting them mm-hmm. kind of do the <laughs> the groundwork, the hard work, <laughs> the hard work, and but that's not the ideal situation either. Right. I mean, we really, in most cases, and we went to another town where we had much more time. Our preference is to go home to home to visit families or individuals one on one to really hear their stories in their own comfort, you know, right. their own setting understanding where they live and and where they're at. And, of course, they're going to feel much more open to share when they don't have a few other hundred right. people listening to them. 299 other people but, uh, listening. Yeah, so so that's the preference. But going in, sometimes it's it's all we can do, and it's more about gaining context, understanding right. what is the situation. I actually read a few days ago that the there's – the ADF, and there's there's been some other rebel activity in eastern Congo within the past two weeks, where there is even a threat of them taking one of the largest towns in the east, Goma, and they've been pushed back with uh, some some help from neighboring military uh, presence, but it, it's it's taken the Ugandan military away from that area. And so there's been an ADF resurgence in that area that has driven all these people back into the bush again. Oh, wow. So as we speak today and this I just read about 5 days ago as we speak there there's nobody at that church that we met them at and VOM is already engaged in in responding to the mm-hmm. needs in that place. And so be in prayer for that because as as we look into 2023 they could return again in a week, they could be Uh, living, you know, in the bush for another year or two, it's, it's hard to say. It's so unpredictable in these circumstances.
1: And which makes it very hard for you and your team to know how to help, you know, like, are they in the bush for a year? Well, that's, that's one set of needs. Are they in the bush for a week and then they're going to come back to town? Well, that's a different set of needs. Yeah, exactly. How do we best serve them? How do we best stand with them? Jeremy, we want to finish up by talking about how people can pray, but I want to ask you about one other country that's in your region, and that's Nigeria, uh, specifically because of elections next year. And uh, early next year, they will elect a new president. Just can you talk a little bit about the church in Nigeria and maybe just lead into how we can pray, and let's start with Nigeria, because I, I know those elections will be very significant. I know also there's an increased risk of violence and unrest leading up to those elections. Our brothers and sisters deal with all those different things and all those different pressures. Can you just share a little bit and, and kind of give us an update on Nigeria?
2: Yes, of course. Uh, the church, specifically in the north of Nigeria, is continues to be under immense pressure, there is an increase in persecution in certain regions of Africa. To understand Nigeria and a lot of the, the places where we're working, there's somewhat of a, of a fault line, you might say, splitting Nigeria in half, which also goes south of the Sahel. Burkina Faso faces some of these issues with, with some of the jihadist threat there and into the Central African Republic where we've seen civil war since 2012. So, so you, have, you have Islam kind of pushing pushing south. And then you have kind of a Christian stronghold south of that fault line uh, that's just kind of trying to maintain ground, right, and not be driven further south. The difference is as Islam pushes south, usually they do that in many of these cases, especially with some of these jihadist groups, um, they do that by violence. And the Christians standing firm and trying to push back are doing that through prayer, Sending missionaries, whatever the case may be, Any, you know, but yeah. So that that's kind of the dynamics, so to speak, of Nigeria, where you do have and that, a Muslim. That north fault a,
1: line that you talked about literally runs right through Nigeria. Like it, it really, like does. it is half and half. The northern part is predominantly Muslim. The southern part predominantly Christian and others. And that I mean that fault line is just right across the center of Nigeria.
2: But what you have in northern Nigeria is a very active church. And some of the strongest believers than in any other part of the country. Attacks against the church have been ongoing, especially from, of course, Boko Haram in the northeast. Tribal attacks, I mean, specifically related to the Fulani tribe um, with a very Islamist agenda Mm -hmm. being supported from, from outside, often not even nationals to that area. Of the country, continue to attack Christian villages, and that's that's caused a very interesting dynamic, which I think we've talked about on VOM Radio in the past. But those those attacks are ongoing, and
1: it's one of the, one of the things that's sad to me. And, and in my role as media spokesperson, I will sometimes have be asked about Nigeria, and the sad thing to me is those attacks happen and almost unreported at this point. It's become so common that it's not even a story anymore. Oh, a church got attacked in Nigeria. Oh, a Christian village got attacked in Nigeria. It's like, okay, yeah, that's happened 50 times this year. We don't need to write a story about that. We don't need to tell a story about that because it's so common.
2: It is. It is very common to the point where I can't even keep up with it, except when I get reports back from our partners or staff on the ground who say, hey, we've We've had an attack almost every single day this week, and I'm I'm almost cut off guard because right. I because you can't find it anything. anywhere else. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, Jeremy, let's go backwards. Let's talk about Benin <laughs> and DRC and Niger and how our listeners can pray for our brothers and sisters in those places this week.
2: Yeah. So for Benin, uh, our partners on the ground ask for prayer, really specifically for the church in the north of the country where they are facing the majority of the persecution strength and boldness to stand for Christ really they they have two options right they're going to give in and take a knee and say we don't want any more of this and and start worshipping in their homes and stop you know stop being so public in their churches or they're going to say which they have counted the cost and we're going to continue to do what we've been doing and we know that we're going to suffer as a result So it's to give in or to suffer. And um, so they they really need our prayers just for the strength of the church there. Amen. DRC, I would say, really pray that the conflict would cease in the East for peace in the region. Uh, Believers need prayer for protection and steadfastness in doing what God has called them to, especially in terms of loving their enemies uh, who have taken so much from them and really continual boldness to, to share the gospel to their enemies. I, I think we can remind ourselves that when hearing of so much conflict and, and violence, that's, that's really, as you stated, hard to imagine. Even with what we do, the amount of violence and the brutality that we're seeing in Eastern DRC is difficult to imagine. But remembering uh, that the same promises that we cling on to from Scripture are true for them as well. And we can remember our brothers and sisters in prayer, knowing that the Lord cares for them, loves them, sees them, and is is working even amidst the violence that they're going through. Lastly, for Niger, jihadist activity is coming in from the west, um, from Burkina Faso and Mali. These are groups affiliated with with ISIS and al-Qaeda that still operate in the region. And we've, we've heard a lot of stories of what's happening in Burkina Faso and in, in Mali, of course. The same things are starting to happen in western Niger. In fact, we've heard of several churches that have been completely destroyed in some of these areas, Christians driven out of villages, their communities, and that's continuing to push north and, and east. So as, as they process this and, and know um, – what is the role of the church and how to shepherd their flock amidst a more intense persecution that's coming their way? I think the other thing we can be in prayer for is that there is still avenues and, and I guess, open hearts to, to receive the gospel among tribes that are more maybe uh, kind of caught up in the conflict in, in neighboring countries, such as the Fulani there's the gospel is is going forth throughout the country and there is openness to hear it before the influence of these jihadist groups come into some of those areas or before that these villages are pressured to you know get rid of the scriptures and and not having anything to do with christianity there is this window so we could pray that God would continue to use that; that more and more would come to Christ, and we're hearing incredible testimonies of those coming to faith in traditionally unreached tribal groups in some of the the, the hardest areas of the country. So, more um, avenues for for those local believers to to share the gospel.
1: Jeremy, you talk about Fulani's coming to know Christ, and just a few weeks back here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio, we had a conversation with one of those, Brother Malik. Uh, who is a Fulani and is a follower of Christ. So uh, even here on Voice of the Martyrs Radio, if if you're listening now, I would encourage you, go to vomradio.net, find Voice of the Martyrs Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, Uh, go back a couple weeks and listen to Brother Malik's testimony. You will be encouraged. Uh, You will hear firsthand that as we pray for Fulani to come to Christ, uh, God is answering that prayer. That's, uh, again, VOMradio.net, Brother Malik, just a few weeks back. Jeremy, one more prayer question before we stop. How do we pray for your staff who are going, they're traveling all these miles, they are then, they're at risk, but then sitting with 300 people who have lost a loved one and trying to minister and trying to give blessing in that situation. How do we pray for your team?
2: It's a good question. I appreciate you asking that. Um, I would say first, our our staff are just so committed and dedicated. God has blessed us so much in providing a team that most of whom grew up in that region and have strong ties and and in some ways – for those who are U.S. citizens or more African than American, for the Africans, it's 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 part of their life of of where they've they've grown up and what they've known, and they wouldn't want to do anything else. God has called them to the field; that's their love, and and they've committed wholeheartedly for that to that to that calling. But at the same time, you know, when being away from their families, pray for their wives and children. That that takes a toll, especially as they go to some of these really dangerous areas um, where it's uncertain whether or not they'll come home next right. week or and and we see a lot of that. in the Sahel itself in West Africa, there's more kidnappings of foreigners than than in any other place in the world over the last several years. So they are serving in hard areas, of course, pray for their families as they speak to those who are being persecuted by the Holy Spirit, finding the, you know, having the words to say to be an encouragement, the scriptures, uh, to encourage them with, and just be a, attentive to the Spirit's leading, to know how to respond, know how to pray with, with people, know how to to just—and sometimes that, that means crying with them, just sitting there and listening and crying with them and being with them. And other times it means reminding them of what we have in Christ, that Christ is victor, that that they're There is a reward. There is an end. This is is not all we're going to know, the suffering that they've experienced, because we all have to be reminded that despite our current hardships, we need to constantly be telling ourselves the gospel. We need to speak truth into our own lives. And the same with our brothers and sisters in this context. They need to be reminded of truth because times get so difficult or they lose loved ones. And so as VOM uh, field staff ministers are able to remind them of that and be there with them and remind them that the global church is praying for them, that that listeners to the show are praying for them is a tremendous encouragement, and that they're not alone in this. Amen. The words to say. And
1: I know that they got that message when you got out of that truck. When your team gets out of the truck and it's like, hey, we're here to hear your stories. We're here to pray with you. We came all this way. Because you're part of our family, and if our family is suffering, then we need to come. We need to be there. Um, so I I encourage you with that. I encourage our listeners to pray for your team and and you, uh, because it is hard work. It is a long way to go, and it is emotionally and spiritually taxing to to be in that situation. So please pray for our Voice of the Martyrs staff as they travel in Africa and around the world to meet with persecuted Christians. We've been talking today with Jeremy Malkin. Jeremy, thank you for your heart. Thank you for your passion, and thanks for sharing this week.
0: Thank you so much, Todd, for having me. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at VOM.com. .com.au All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted.